Man, pretty exciting stuff happening around here. You guys excited? Yeah, very cool. So today is the very muggy day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. 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 Hey, I'm Ryan Kimball. I'm the lead pastor here at Peace Church. And I just want to say this. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'd love to make that happen. Um, I say that like almost every single Sunday. And then after I get done preaching, I run back, I grab my coffee, then I come and wait right here to meet some new people. And I feel very lonely at times. So if we haven't met, please, I'd love to connect with you. Um, But one thing I do love is when I see all y'all connect with each other. Please continue to make that happen. Okay, so let's get going with it today. All these, all these uh, kids going back to school, standing up, that reminds me as we look at the new school year, reminds me of my childhood, and I am so thankful I'm not going back to school this fall. <laughs> but I remember a question that I always got growing up. And I'm willing to bet you probably got it too. And if you are a student, you probably get this question every now and again. It's, what do you want to be when you grow up? Go ahead, tell your neighbor, what did you or what do you want to be when you grow up? Is it what you're doing now? All right, just just one answer, not your life story. So we'd ask this question, and we do ask this question to kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'll say, a doctor, a lawyer, teacher, astronaut, something to that effect. But along the lines over the last years and last decades and last generations, somebody was like, wait a minute, we shouldn't be asking kids what they want to be when they grow up. Because what we're going to do is we're setting them up to think that that what they do for a living is now their identity. And we don't want kids to think that what they do for their profession is who they are. We shouldn't ask them what they want to be when they grow up. We should ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up? And so we started asking, and some of us started switching from what do you want to be, and we started trying to be more intentional. We said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And we abandoned the question of what do you want to be? I think when you look at our culture and our society, you have a generation that knows what they want to do, but they don't know who they want to be. I say we need to return to asking our youth and our next generation, what do you want to be when you grow up? But that should be a challenge to us who have grown up. When we think about what sort of perspective we want to give kids when they look at us, are we setting the right example? See, who we are is directly tied to how we see the world. See, who we are and who we try to be is informed by our perspective. And I think this is a life lesson for every single stage. Do you have the right perspective in life? Because that directly feeds into who you are trying to be and who you are. And the Apostle Paul, he gives this perspective to his young protege named Titus. See, Paul and Titus, they do missions together, and and Paul leaves Titus on the island of Crete to continue to pastor and to continue to plant churches. Paul leaves to continue his work, but at some point he writes back to Titus, and he gives him, he gives his young mentor, his young mentoree, he gives his young protege some perspective as he is a pastor, what he is to teach his congregation. 
And he tries to get Titus to focus on not what they do, but who they are. Who are they trying to be? And so Paul tells Titus, and he gives Titus this beautiful list of these qualities of who Christians are to be. And that's what we're going to look at here today as we continue the sermon series. It's a short little sermon series called Life Lessons as we close up the summer. Today, I want to talk about having the right perspective for your life. Last week, we talked about having the right people in your life, and we, we really zeroed in on the role of the elders in the church. Today could almost be the idea of, like, are you the right person? Like, are, are you going to be the right person for other people's lives? But I don't want to focus on that. I want to just focus on the perspective that God gives us in who he is calling us to be. So as we read Titus chapter 2 today, I want you to take a notice of a few things as we go through this. Notice how Paul, through Titus, addresses everyone. No one's left out of these instructions. He focuses on Titus himself as a young pastor, and he focuses on everyone else, men, women, boys, and girls. So as we go through this, I'm going to ask you to do this. Like, don't try to read anything into this right now. Just receive what Paul is saying. Don't try to measure this up with what our current world is trying to tell us. Just receive it and then let's process it. So, would you hear the word of the Lord? Titus chapter 2, we'll read the entire chapter together. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have your Bible in front of you. So hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes to Titus and he says this. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women... Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and then let's get to it. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we gather here this morning, Lord, we're mindful of the abundant blessing that we get to have in this room, in this safety, being able to gather and worship so freely 
Lord, we're mindful of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Many of them think, Lord, that they're going to be meeting Jesus face to face this week and the coming weeks, and yet they still gather. Lord, they are a testimony for us to follow. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, as we learn some life lessons today, Lord, I pray that it would go to feed and fill and guide our lives. Lord, thank you for the examples of brothers and sisters across this globe who, who gather even though they don't get to do so so freely. I think of the underground church in North Korea and, and China. We're mindful front and center of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. So I just pray, Father, that here and now, by the power and presence and person of the Holy Spirit, You'd illuminate for us all that you would have for us today, nothing more and nothing less. Give us eyes to see, hearts that are open, and minds that are ready to receive your gospel, that we would be transformed by it. For your glory, for the good of our neighbor, and for our joy, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. So as we get going today, and we talk about having right perspective, the perspective to be who God's calling us to be. I'm just going to give you our, our outline. If you're a note taker, if you'd like to know where we're going, here's our three-point approach to this morning. We're going to first talk about seeing the why in what God calls us to. Then we're going to talk about enjoying the what God calls us to. And then we'll talk about knowing who it is that calls us. Knowing it is who that calls us. So we, we first talked about this morning about what we want to be and what we want to do when we grow up. We talk about the, the questions that we have for kids. But if you have children or if you have proximity to children, maybe you raise children, you know that children have questions for us. They have lots of questions. Or should I say, they have one question they ask a lot. And if you don't know what it is, little Zoe is going to remind us. Get up, girl. Why? It's daytime. You've got to brush your teeth. Why? Because you have morning breath. Why? Why what? No, kids can't have coffee. Why? Because coffee is for big people. Why? Because um, little kids can't drink it. It makes you too hyper. Why make me too hyper? Give me a little bit. No. <laughs> Why? The endless question kids ask us. Why? Now, I, I'm, I'm raising four kids of my own, which means I've been asked the why question roughly four quadrillion times. But here's what we do, right? We get frustrated and we get annoyed answering the why question. And so we tell kids, stop asking why. And my friends, I'm here to tell you, those are among the three most dangerous words we can instill in the heart of our children to tell them to stop asking why. No, 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 no. We need to tell them always ask why. The world that we're growing up in, the world that's evolving around us, I don't know if you've noticed, but in my estimation, it's not exactly going in the right direction. So we need to be asking why. And as the next generation rises up to leadership and prominence, they need to always be asking why. We need to tell our kids, don't ever stop asking why. And the Bible does not leave us without the why. It gives us instruction. 
but then it gives us the why. See, in our passage today, I don't know if you noticed it, but, but the why answer is what follows the words, so that. See, in the Bible, it gives us instruction, and then it says, so that, and then it tells us why. In our world, we want to project all the reasons why the Bible tells us to do what it tells us to do, but we got to let the Bible speak for itself. The Bible gives us its own why. So the words, so that, are critical. In fact, the word, so that, in English, is actually one word in the original language. It was the word, hina, and it means, so that, or for the purpose of. And we see it three times just in the passage that we read today. In verse 5, in verse 8, and verse 10. This is the why that God calls us to the life that he does. So let's look at him real quick. Seeing the why. So, so that, hinna, the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8. So that, hinna, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing to say about us. Verse 10, so that henna and everything, they may adorn the doctrine of the gospel of God. So if we could boil this down like into a, a nice little point system that we could maybe take notes with. Here's, here's why I would say, why does the Bible call us to live the way it does as outlined in, in Titus chapter 2? Here's why. So that the truth will be appreciated by the watching world. So that opponents will be astonished in the life that we live and so that the gospel will be admired. This is why God calls us to live the way that he does in Titus chapter 2. So that the truth will be appreciated, so that opponents will be astonished, and so that the gospel will be admired. For whatever you, whatever you hear me say today, for whatever you learn, when you think about why does God want this, this is why. So with that perspective, knowing the why, let's talk about enjoying the what. What does God call us to? We know why God calls us to, but what does he call us to? So let's go back to verse 1. Go back to chapter 2, verse 1, if you've got your Bibles open. Paul writes to Titus with these instructions. And this is the instruction that Paul gives. He says, but as for you, Titus, pastor, but as for you, example setter, teach what accords with sound Doctrine. Now let's talk about this for a second, because I think when we see this, we think, oh, wow, this sounds very academic and stoic. Like Paul writes this wearing a tweed jacket, a bow tie, and glasses with some tape between them. This is not at all the ethos of what is, what's being written here. So, but as for you, teach what accords, what is in line with, what is consistent with sound doctrine. Now, don't get tripped up by the word doctrine. Doctrine just means a set of teachings, our set of beliefs. But this word sound here, let's just camp on this word sound for a moment. See, in the original language, uh, ancient Greek and Koine Greek, this word evolved into our English word, the word hygiene. Our word hygiene is where we get um, this, uh, our word hygiene, we get that word from this word that means sound in the original language. It meant healthy. It meant right. It meant homogenous. It meant stable. It meant consistent. It meant sound. So you could say what Paul tells Titus is that, as for you, teach what accords with healthy teachings. This is for our health. This is for our good. This is meant for our benefit. This is not meant to be repressive, oppressive, or undermining, but it's meant to be healthy instructions. So in this section, Paul addresses everybody. 
But for the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to focus on what we all agree with. I think what Paul tells Titus, the men and the boys, I think everyone agrees with that. We all want pastors who are solid men. We all want um, men and boys who are sound in the faith, who are steadfast, who are men uh, defined by love. We, we all want that. Nobody, nobody has a problem with that. But if I could, for just one, one quick moment, um, where's my soapbox? Oh, here it is. Let me stand on my soapbox here for a second. What Paul says to Titus, um, he says, I think he says to all pastors, teach what's right. Be a man of integrity and dignity. I'm going to tell you right now, like, because I have the power and presence of the, and the person of the Holy Spirit in me, I believe that I have what I need for, to do what God's called me to do. I think I have with, within me, because God put it in me, it's not within me myself, because God has instilled the Holy Spirit within me, I believe I can live into what God's called us here today. But I am definitely strengthened by your prayers. Pastors need your prayers, congregation. Pastors need your prayers. All the pastors on staff at Peace need your prayers. Thank you for those who pray for us. Please don't stop. We feel it. We are carried along. We are strengthened by your prayers. So please don't stop. Okay, I'll get off the soapbox here for a second. Okay. So of course, everyone wants solid pastors. And of course, we want men and boys to be self-controlled examples of love, faith, and steadfastness. I would hope that even an anti-Christian culture would want this of men and boys. But let's talk for a moment about what Paul says that I think may rub against our culturally conditioned 21st century mindsets. First, let's talk about what he says to the women and the girls. Let's take this phrase by phrase. Again, please don't come with this preconceived notions. Receive what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us. Let's walk through this phrase by phrase. So Paul says to Titus that the older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Cool, yes. We want women to be reverent in behavior. We want women's behavior to so, be so solid that we revere them. Awesome, perfect. Reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Okay, Paul, you're kind of assuming that the ladies are the gossipers, but we'll give you a pass because nobody likes gossip, right? Nobody likes backstabbing. Okay, yep, not slanderers. Okay, or slaves to much wine. Okay, so ladies, uh, you can have a glass of wine or two, but just don't be dependent on the bottle. Okay, got it. Yep, okay, we're good, Paul. We're tracking with you. Uh, they are to teach what is good. Yep, we like that. Yep, women use their voice for, for righteous things. Okay, uh, and so train the young women. Oh, mentorship. We love mentorship. Want to see that continue? Yep, great. Uh, so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Hmm? Oh, is that what you want, Paul? Oh, I think I see what's going on here, Paul. Oh, I see what direction you're trying to go. Let's, let's, let's see. To be... To be self-controlled and pure, huh, Paul? Oh, so women can't have a good time. Is that what you're saying here, Paul? Women need to be oh, self-controlled and pure, can't have, go out and have a good time. Is that what you're trying to say to us, Paul? Working at home? Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe what I'm reading here. No, Paul. The home is not a prison that women are to be confined to. You misogynist. Working at home. Let's see what else you got for us. Kind and submissive to their own husbands. There it is. There it is. Paul just told us that women are cattle to be owned by their husbands. 
It's right there, right? Is that really what Paul's saying here? No. I, I wrote this down because I want to make sure I get this right because I, I want you to write this down too. Don't refute what the Bible's not teaching. Don't project what you think the Bible is trying to say and then refute that. Let the Bible speak for itself. The Bible gives us the why. Paul is not saying this. This is not oppressive or repressive teaching. This is meant to be healthy teaching. This is meant to be sound doctrine. It's not oppressive or repressive. If you think that, if you just process this like I just showed for us, if you think that, then I'm going to ask you to wipe away the fog of the cultural conditioning from your worldview and see that what God has for all of us is good and it's right and it's healthy. Listen to me. If a woman is called to be a wife and a mother, should she not be setting the example for her daughters on how to love an imperfect man? I think that's a good thing. But I think what ends up happening is like women, they look at the imperfections of their husband and they tell their daughters, Here's everything wrong with your dad. Don't marry a man like that. Rather than saying, my daughter, no man is perfect. Here's how you love an imperfect man. I think that is a better approach. I think that is what Paul is calling us to. I think the great decline of our culture can be traced back to the weakening of the home. The family is the foundation of society. And Paul points to the strength of women as bedrocks of the home to show society and to show our daughters that the home is not a prison that a woman is confined to, but it is the front line of maintaining not just a healthy society, but a healthy family. And the phrase here, working at home, this word here, it's actually, it's just one word in the original language. We translate it to working at home, but in the original language, this is one word that's the combination of two words. It's the word for home and the word for guard. See, the biblical image for a woman is not someone dressed in an apron carrying a spatula. It is a woman clothed in dignity, carrying a shield, and she defends her home and sets the example for a watching world. See, we're not people who try to be self-fulfilled, we are people who are filled by the Holy Spirit. And that should show the world something different, and I would say something better. Don't refute what the Bible isn't teaching. The Bible is not saying that women cannot work outside the home. Peace Church employs women. We're not saying that women can't have a job. Maybe you want to work, ladies. Maybe you have to work. I don't think you're violating any biblical command here. Proverbs 31, which details the godly woman, says that she is a, a wife and a mother who loves her kids, who defends her home, but it also says that she's, she's a savvy businesswoman. She knows how to make good investments. Paul is saying here that the role of the wife and the role of the mother in the home is not something to be seen as less than. It's not to be seen as a gate keeping a woman from true self-fulfillment. The role of the mother and the wife in the home is to be elevated as holy and honorable and good and dignified. And we do that too. We hold it up like that. And let me just talk, speak to submission here for a moment. Notice Paul says submissive to their own husbands. Women are not to be subject to any and old man out there. But women are to be submissive to their own husbands. And that does not mean subjugation. That does not mean slavery. It means that God has established an order for the home. Listen to me. 
just like he has within the Trinity. Within the Trinity, there is order so that there maintains unity and goodness. And even within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there are lines of submission. Jesus Christ, God the Son, submits to God the Father bringing unity to the Trinity. And just like that, so the wife submits to her husband, bringing unity to the family. Not slavery, not subjugation. Submission means that you help the husband do what God has called him to do as the head of the household. Not the dictator, not the king, not the boss. The sacrificial, loving husband who gets his example from Jesus Christ. And so young ladies in the house, young ladies, Listen to me, do not marry a man unless he is so godly that submitting to him is a joy for you because he honors you and he loves you and he lifts you up. And so boys in the house, there's your standard. There's your standard that you get to grow into. There's your standard that you get to watch and look for men who are living into that standard and follow and model them. Rise to the challenge, boys. We all know that um, every now and again, I'm, 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 uh, I'm not afraid to lay out a good challenge if I think the church needs to hear it. But to this day, to this day, the strongest challenge that anyone has ever given me in my entire life came from my wife when she told me that if I loved her like Jesus Christ loves the church, it would be a joy to submit to me. Really? Just Jesus? That's, that's the only one? Okay. This is about bringing strength and unity and dignity to the home. It's not about oppression or suppression. But why? Why again? Keep asking why. Why? Why? Our passage here answers that for us. Why? Why are women to live like this? So that henna, the word of God, may not be reviled. So that when people look to us, they see the truth being lived out. And I think what the truth is, is healthy teachings. It's meant for our good to lift us up. See, our homes are to be places where the world can see healthy teachings, sound doctrine of the Bible being exemplified and lived out in our lives. So, okay, so let's talk about bond servants for a moment. Bond servants. Let's just be straight. The Bible is speaking about slaves here. And the reason that we translate the word doulos, which means slave, the reason we translate that into bond servant is specifically because the translator know that the American ear hears slavery and we immediately go to the wretched demonic evil of slavery in the American South. And the translators are trying to give an, an appropriate term to what Roman slavery was actually like. Because while it was still slavery, it wasn't exactly like the American South. So let's take a moment and survey some of the differences. Let's talk about slavery in the Roman world. Again, the Roman world when this book was written. One third of the population of Rome was a slave. As Rome, as you probably know, as Rome went out and captured and conquered the world, they did bring people into slavery. Or people were born into slavery. Or even at times we see Roman citizens 
would sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Rome sought to pass laws to address cruelty to slaves. In the Roman world, slaves interacted freely with free citizens. Slaves would even hold high government office. Slaves could even be managers of businesses. Around half of all Roman slaves were freed no later than age 30. Now, don't get me wrong. While hopefully you're seeing some important differences between Roman slavery and American slavery, it was still slavery. But we often use the term bond servant because in the majority of cases, this was not a lifelong situation and it was not a race-based slavery like the American South. Slavery, for scripture, is always wrong. Roman slavery may not have been like the American South, but it was still bondage. And the Bible says that it is in opposition to the Christian call to own another human being. Enslavers, enslavers is listed as those in the Bible who are living in sin. They're they're living opposed to the Christian call. In fact, the entire book The the entire New Testament book of Philemon is all about pleading to free the slave Onesimus. But I want to talk about something real quick that's near and dear, I think, to a lot of people's hearts in here. Paul is addressing a open legal part of a secular society that was out in the open. What Paul says to bond servants, what he says to Roman slaves, he is not saying that to seven-year-old girls caught in the sex-trafficking slave in this world. We need to fight with guns to get them out of that. This is not something that we tell little kids who are trapped in the sex slave. You need to be obedient to your master. We need to get them out of that. Paul is addressing a legal system that was ungodly. And he is seeking to do something pretty radical here if you're watching this. For Paul's audience, knowing that slavery is wrong and that a slave owner is in sin, Paul yet does not call for Christian slave revolt. Practically speaking, a slave revolt would have meant death and doom to slaves during Paul's time, and Paul doesn't want that. He's got, got I think, a different road here. See, when bond servants... When slaves, when bond servants show themselves to be model citizens, even in their slavery, Paul says, by this they adorn the gospel. That is, they make the gospel beautiful in ways that people can see. Because what we do, what he is showing them, is that by this we show the world that our joy does not come by our status in life, but by our salvation in Jesus Christ. And this astonishes the opponents and it adorns the gospel. Listen to me. The Christian ethic is acid thrown on evil systems. And the more people become Christians, the more acid there is on these evil systems. And it corrodes away. And the acid wins out. Because changing hearts is more effective and long-lasting than changing laws. Paul doesn't tell the slaves to fight for their freedom, but to win the hearts of those around them. And remember why. Remember why. So that the truth will be appreciated, so that opponents will be astonished, and so that the gospel will be admired. This is about winning hearts. So real real quickly, can we learn anything from the Christian call to Roman slaves? Well, let me just say this real quick. In, In our day, the ethos is something like, leaders eat last, 
or the, that the employer should be better to the employee than vice versa. Or that we say things like the sun rises and sets on leadership, that servant leadership is the way. And Paul is like, no, no. No, Christians, we do not defer and regulate our standard to those in authority or leadership over us. Christians are the ones who always set the standard, no matter our status or our place in life. Our perspective is that we set the standard, no matter our status. If you're the boss, then be the type of boss that every worker wants to work for. If you're the employee, be the kind that everyone wants to hire, no matter who your boss is. Why again? Why again? So the truth will be admired and our opponents will be astonished and that the gospel will be admired. So as we try to gain perspective in what, God, in what God calls us to and why, let's talk about knowing the who. Who is it that God calls us? See, the who is Jesus Christ. This is who calls this. To the, this is who calls us to this. He, Jesus Christ, he is our ultimate why, and he are, is our true and defining what. He is our true reason, and he is our real example. Men in the house, why are you supposed to have self-control and dignity? Because you follow Jesus Christ. Women, how are you to be re- uh, revered and submissive? It's because you look to Jesus Christ. Christians in the house, do you know what we are doing? Do you know what we're doing with our time? I mean, like, all in all, what are you doing? What are we doing? See, we are not those seeking self-fulfillment. We are those who are filled by the Holy Spirit. But what are we doing? We are biding our time. We follow this example as we bide our time. We live the way that we do because we are waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christian, this is the key to the lives and the perspective that we have, that we follow a guy who did things differently. He gave himself for us. He gave himself for you. He gave himself for you. Why? To redeem you, to redeem us, to purify us, and to call us his own. Why did he give himself for you? To save you, to make you righteous, and to make you his own. After Jesus Christ conquered death by rising from the dead, rising from the grave, and after he returned to heaven, we now long for his return as we live life's that are zealous for good works. As we wait for his return, do you know what it means to be zealous for good works? It means to live the life that Titus chapter 2 outlines, knowing that it is healthy and good and right. And I know that people will look to Titus chapter 2 and they'll be frustrated because of how countercultural it seems to our modern ears. But the Christian call gives us a different perspective one that looks beyond our time and our culture, looks beyond ourselves to something greater, for something greater, to someone greater, who asks us, not what do you want to do in life, but he gives us a perspective to be something different in this world. Amen.